I do know we have some visitors here. I've met the visitor before, but it's been some time, so I indicated to him that he's still a visitor to me. So welcome. Good to see you. Good to have you again. Uh, there's another visitor that I didn't know, but uh, it's good to have you, sir. And I, you have a child here. Are they in super church? That's, that's wonderful. That's great. <laughs> in any event, uh, I'm Pastor Dan, for those that, who are visiting. And uh, my sermon this morning, the title is uh, God's Throne, A Sight to Behold. Now, my last sermon was on chapter 15 of the book of the Revelation. And I was concerned then that some of you would be lost and confused by my message. After all, it was on the book of the Revelation, a book of symbols, similes, and metaphors. Well, I'm back with another such message, you know. And my wife listened to the sermon this morning, and she wants to hear it again so that she can unconfuse herself. (laughs) I have to tell you that it's a bit heady, but I'm simply taking... My text today, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and I'm simply following it verse to verse until we get to the end, and whatever the Lord speaks to your heart, take it. And if it comes close to what I'm saying, a double benefit, amen? In any event, I hope that this sermon points to the Christmas celebration that we have planned at the end of the month. It's the birth of the Christ child. Now, I want to remind you ahead of time before we start this sermon is that that child is God described in the book of the Revelation. So, as I indicated, the sermon is a bit heady. So, please follow your text and follow the sermon outline which we have provided for you as an insert in your bulletin. I will have a little thing, though. There's a notice for you in your outline, section 4. You'll find that the word acclamation is misspelled, and I take credit for that. It's not, it's not Kate that somehow is messed up. I did it. As a matter of fact, she changed one of my words last time, and I said, you, you did it wrong, and I was right. And this time, she might have seen it and says, I'm not changing it. Amen. So I thank, I thank God for Kate every day. Well, Father, we thank you, Lord God, and I just pray this morning to let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen? Amen. Well, Revelation chapter 4 brings to us an entirely different perspective. The outline of Revelation is found in Revelation 119, where John says, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Now, the things which you have seen refers to John's vision of the glorified risen Christ in the first chapter. The things which are deals with the letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. But all the events which take place beginning in this chapter 4 are events of the future. They are events yet to unfold. They are yet to take place. For these are the things which will take place after this. So first in our text, verse 1, there is an identification. 
John hears a voice which he refers to as the first voice. This is the voice of the Lord Jesus, which John first heard in chapter 1, verse 10. There is then an invitation. Jesus says to John, come up here. Up until this point, John has been seeing things from below, but now Jesus wants him to come and see things from above. And so the rest of this revelation, John will be seeing things from God's point of view. And I would hasten to add that all of God's children need to see life from a heavenly perspective. You know, sometimes you'll ask a person how they are, and they'll say, well, I'm okay under the circumstances. Well, I want to tell you that a child of God is never under the circumstances. He's always over the circumstances. It's true that according to this last book of the Bible, the world is headed for trials, troubles, tribulations never before experienced on earth in the history of mankind. But no child of God should ever fear, for Psalm 46 once states that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then there is an illustration in verse 1, for the Lord says to John, I will show you things which must take place after this. The very first thing that John is shown is the throne room of heaven. Now, you need to keep in mind that the focal point of the book of the Revelation is the throne of God. Revelation commences with the throne. We read in chapter 1, verse 4, of the seven spirits who are before his throne. And Revelation concludes with a throne, as we read in Revelation 22, 3, of the throne of God. So 12 times in this chapter and 46 times in this book, God's throne is mentioned. And so immediately, we are ushered into the control room of the universe where God is on the throne. You know, sometimes we think that the universe somehow revolves around this little planet, which we call Earth. Well, I have news for you. This entire universe revolves around the throne of God. And if you want to understand the book of the Revelation, remember this fact. God is on his throne and he is in control. As David said long ago in Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. You know, if you were to walk into heaven right now, you would see exactly what John saw. Your mind and thoughts and attention would be drawn to the same thing that John was drawn to, the throne of God. You would see and experience the same things he did. And so first, considering your outline, the sovereign upon the throne. Verse 2 states, Immediately I saw I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. The first thing that caught John's attention was not the pearly gates and the gold streets. It was the throne of God, and more particularly, the God who sat upon that throne. And John noticed immediately that he was a mysterious God. And John tries to describe God, but he has to use a simile. He says that God, verse 3, was like a jasper. Now, Revelation 21.11 tells us that this jasper was clear as crystal. Well, in ancient times, 
The jasper was an opaque stone, but here we are told it's clear as crystal. In other words, it is more like our modern-day diamond, and this refers to the radiance and the brilliance of our God. You know, a diamond is valuable because of its flawlessness, because in its very character there is no blemish, there is no blot. So this refers to the beauty of our wonderful God. But he was also like, verse 3, a sardius stone. Now this is a stone that is blood red in its color. I believe this refers to the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the Old Testament, the high priest would wear a breastplate. On that breastplate were 12 jewels. Now the first jewel was a jasper stone, and the last jewel was a sardius stone. The Jews were God's people. The high priest was God's representative. So these jewels were a reminder that God's people were always on God's heart. Now our high priest is the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's way of telling us that even today we are always on his heart. God may not always be on your mind, but I can assure you, you are never out of the mind of God. Psalm 40 verse 5 tells us of God's thoughts. It says, your thoughts which are toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Then I want you to notice he is a majestic God. We see in verse 3, there was a rainbow around, a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now this is a strange rainbow. First, because it is a complete circle. It's not a half an arc as you and I would see today, but it's rather a circle. Now, a circle is a perfect geometric figure. It has no ending. It has no beginning. And I believe this represents the internality of God, his absolute perfection. You see, if you would put us on a graph, it would be a straight line because we have a beginning and we have an end. But God would have to be a circle because God has no ending and he has no beginning. But also notice this rainbow is green, like an emerald. Now in the Bible, green is the color of life. You know, when you have a tree or a plant is living, it's green. And remember as well, That in the Bible, the rainbow is a symbol of God's covenant faithfulness. It is a sign that God is true to his word. And the first rainbow in the Bible was given to show that the storm was over. And this rainbow is a reminder and a sign to the people of God that in heaven, there are no more storms. There is no more pain, no pangs, no more sickness, no more sorrow, no crying, no more dying, no more grief, no more guilt. There is only one life everlasting with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And lastly, notice he is a magnificent God. Verse 5 states, And from the throne proceeded lightning, thundering, and voices. Now this rainbow not only signals that one storm is over, it also signals that one storm is just beginning. Lightning and thundering are signs that a storm is brewing. These are the storm signals coming from the throne of God that tells us of the wrath and the judgment that is yet to come upon this sinful, rebellious world. 
And so the next several chapters of this book are taken up with the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls of judgment. Entire nations today laugh and mock at the very existence of God. They believe that they are in control of their own destiny by their own power and their own might. They do not realize, as Isaiah 40, 15 to 17 states, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as a small dust on the balance. All nations before him are as nothing and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. This world has one more appointment that it's going to be keeping with God. For God is going to have the last word. God is going to have the last say. And according to Psalm 2.4, God is going to have the last laugh. Secondly, considering your outline, the servants around the throne. Verse 4 states, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Now, who are these elders that surround the throne of God? Well, I believe the best person to answer that question is John, and I believe he did, for we are told in Revelation 21, 12 to 14, that there are 12 gates in heaven, each one having the name of one of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And then we see that there are 12 foundations, and each of one of them are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. In other words, these 24 elders represent all the saints of the Old Testament and of the New Testament. They represent those redeemed of the Old Testament and those redeemed of the New Testament who have died and gone to be with God. Now, there is oftentimes a misunderstanding even by Christians as to how people in the Old Testament were saved. There is a misconception that people in the Old Testament were saved by the law and sacrifices, while people in the New Testament are saved by grace. But that is totally untrue. Everyone who goes to heaven has to be saved. And everyone has to be saved the same way. God's way of salvation has always been the same by grace through faith. And those who believe that they're saved by keeping the law, the Bible says that by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Some say that they were saved by the sacrifices. And the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Listen, the Old Testament saints were saved then the same way we are saved now, by grace through faith. There were those who were saved looking forward to Jesus. Others were saved looking backward to Jesus. But all are saved looking to Jesus. Now we are told these elders were clothed in white robes. That refers to their sanctification. But then we are told they had crowns of gold on their heads. That refers to their service not their titles. There are two words for crown in the Greek language. One word refers to the crown of a king. 
The other word refers to the wreath or crown that would be given a victorious athlete in a race. That is the word used here. These are not crowns of royalty. These are crowns of victory. I'll have more to say about these crowns in just a little while. But for now, third, considering your outline, the scene before the throne. Now, as great as God is on his throne, and as wonderful as the throne is itself, just as intriguing is the scene before the throne. Verse 5 states, Seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now remember, the number seven is the number of completeness. There is only one Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Here we see the Holy Spirit before the throne of God, pictured as seven lamps of fire. The number of completeness. Also, both fire and light are symbols of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Isaiah 4.4, he is called the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. And this tells us of the twofold function of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it is the job of the Holy Spirit to cast light on the glory of Jesus. It is his job to illuminate and to magnify and glorify the person and the ministry of the Son of God. Jesus even sent the Holy Spirit to continuously testify of him. But it is also the job of the Holy Spirit to be the prosecutor of the human race. It is his job to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, so states John 16, 8. So both today in the hearts of lost men And tomorrow in the hearts of a lost world, the Holy Spirit, as the prosecuting attorney, will be bringing his airtight case of judgment and condemnation upon those who would dare to reject God's precious Son, Jesus. And then verse 6 states, Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now this was not a literal sea, but rather it is something that appears to be a sea. It is a vessel of glass or a vessel that contains glass. Now the sea of glass finds as its counterpart the sea of brass. It's found in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings 7.23, this was the laver in the temple, a basin filled with water where the priest would come to wash before he would offer his sacrifices. This sea was a symbol of the Word of God, just as water in the New Testament is a symbol of the Word of God. For we are told in Ephesians 5.26 that we are cleansed with the washing of water by the Word. But here, it is not a sea of water, but rather a sea of glass. But now, rather than washing in it, which we do not have to do, because rather we are clean forever. Now we simply stand on it. The only basis we have of standing before God is his holy word. One of these days we will join the heavenly throng standing on the promises of God. And because of his magnificent word that is forever fixed and settled in heaven, we can always know that we have a sure foundation for our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verses 7 and 8, We are told the four living creatures, one like a lion, the second like a calf, the third like a man, and the fourth like an eagle. 
In Genesis 9-8, the Lord made a covenant with all of his creation. He made a covenant with Noah, the birds, the cattle, and the beasts of the earth. Here in verse 7, we see those same representations. The lion represents the beasts of the earth. The calf represents the cattle. The man represents Noah. The eagle represents the birds. Now, the reason why creation is represented is because God is not finished with his creation yet. This world is not the way God created it, nor is it the way that God intends for it to be. God has made a promise to remake, to remold, to reshape this world and to restore it to its pristine purity and unblemished beauty. God's good creation, though today a groaning creation, will one day be a glorious creation. And God has made a promise that one day the lamb will lie down with the lion that swords will be beaten into plowshares, and that the glory of the Lord will fill all of the earth. And that glorious and marvelous fact leads us to the last significant experience that John had. Fourth, in your outline, consider the shouts unto the throne. If you want to know what is going on in heaven all of the time, day and night, I can tell you in one word, praise. If you would like to know what we are going to be doing when we get to heaven, you can see it in these last few verses. Whatever else heaven is going to be, it is going to be a very loud place. For the shouts of the saints will reverberate through the halls of heaven for all eternity. Notice first the shouts of acclamation. We are told these four living creatures in verse 8 do not rest day or night saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. These four living creatures are God's cheerleaders. Continuously, without end, void of any rest, acclaiming God for who He is. He is holy, a God of purity. He is the Lord God Almighty, a God of authority. He is also the God who was and is and is to come, the God of eternality. And listen, the child of Christmas is He. Then notice the shouts of adoration. We find that praise is contagious. The 24 elders, the redeemed, are not going to let these living creatures outdo them. So they too join in worshiping and praising the Lord, saying, verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they will exist and were created. He is the resource and the substance of all creation. The ACLU will not like it, but evolution will not be taught in heaven. Just creation. Lastly, notice the shouts of appreciation. The 24, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Earlier I mentioned crowns of victory that were not crowns of royalty. Well, the Bible here speaks of several crowns that will be given to those who are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, there is a soul winner's crown. There is a crown of righteousness. There is a crown of glory. 
But these crowns will not be for us to put up on the shelves and to admire and to show off to our friends. They will be for casting at his feet as we realize these crowns were from him and through him and by him and for him. I wonder, when we join that throng around the throne, will you have a crown to cast before him or will you be empty-handed? Saved, but empty-handed. Now this sermon has been the picture of God that should shape our prayers and our praise. And I want to tell you, if you do not like praise, you're not going to like heaven. I agree with Dr. A.W. Tozer, who once wrote, I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. From here, I can see some of you not singing, sitting with your arms folded, looking at your watches. Tozar is right. I'm becoming convinced that heaven is not just going to be or is going to be just one gigantic praise and worship service in adoration of our heavenly king. Hebrews 11.6 states, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Not just that he exists, as some translations state it. Listen, no man can praise God until he sees God as he is. But when he sees God as he is, he will praise God as he ought. Praise and faith is simply the result of a correct vision and understanding of who God is. Amen? Amen? I'm going to ask the praise team if they'll take the platform one more time for a closing song, and then we'll close.